0: One hundred years ago this month, at eleven o'clock in the morning, on the eleventh day of the eleventh month, 1918, world leaders signed the armistice that ended the First World War. It was a war that was a baptism of fire for the newly established nation of Australia, a war we're still trying to make sense of today. So let's separate the myth from fact and try to learn the lessons behind those three powerful words, lest we forget. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Well, it's fantastic to have with us here on Signs of the Times Radio, Associate Professor Daniel Reno from Avondale College in New South Wales. How are you, Daniel? I'm very well, thank you Now Daniel, your, your passion and, and your discipline and your profession is in the area of, of modern history And that's why we have you here on, on the show Because you've written a book just recently Focusing on those Anzac soldiers at Gallipoli And their spirituality in, parte- in particular Those faithful diggers, you know, Anzac soldiers speak Wow, it's, it's really incredible How's that book been received so far?
1: quite well. Actually, it's not just about soldiers at Gallipoli. It's mm. about their spiritual engagements during that time. So, not just religious, but spiritual in general. Okay. Although, given the time, that mainly meant religious, because that's how they understood it. Yeah, yeah. sure. But no, it's, it's had a good reception. It's it's a topic that Australians seem reluctant to talk about. Okay. Okay. Generally speaking, we've been a culture that hasn't put religion in the public sphere, and especially ANZAC history. We're not interested in the religious history of it. That's Uh, that's
0: really interesting um, that you say that, Daniel, because I think out of – all the trends that we've seen towards secularism in Australia over the last few decades, one trend that we did see probably during the Howard years in particular was this spectacle of young people going to Gallipoli as a sort of a, a pilgrimage really. Absolutely. It was a very spiritual event. I mean, we have yes. Australians of all stripes, you know, gathering there on, on Anzac Day, hearing the, you know, Jesus words spoken, you know, greater love hath no man than this and he laid down his life for his friends and, you know, there are hymns and there are prayers and there, there are all sorts of things, and yet you say people don't want to talk about the spiritual side of you know, of the war and, and the First World War experience. How does that work? Look, it's a great irony.
1: That the fact is, as many secular commentators have noted, that the Anzac narrative, the Anzac legend, is Australia's secular religion. Yeah. That's widely accepted. But what you're not allowed to talk about is the religion of the actual soldiers themselves. And I find that intriguing that we have made their story our spiritual core, mm. but we don't know what their spiritual core was. And so this investigation for me was, was going, so so what did they do spiritually? How did they – what did they think? What did they believe? How did they respond in, in, in the spiritual sphere to the experiences of the Great War. If we're going to base our national spirituality on the Anzacs, It'd be a darn good idea to know what their spirituality was.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. But before we answer that question specifically, though, I'd just like to take a little bit of a step back because I mean, look, I, I loved history in high school. Not everyone did. Not everyone's sort of into history. So, just help us a little bit to understand. You know, what sort of people were the soldiers of that first Australian Imperial Force? Like, were these young guys? Working class guys? Were they conscripts? I'm like, give, give us a little bit of a a picture
1: okay, uh, they represent a cross section of Australian society. Mm-hmm. The majority of them, probably four fifths of them, came from towns and cities. Mm-hmm. So, the Bush Anzac is a, a little bit of a myth. Okay, uh, about a fifth of them were from the Bush, and I mean, that's quite simple. Four fifths of Australians lived in towns and cities at the time, yes. So, they're everyone from the uh, illiterate working classes through to the you know to the snobs of society and mm-hmm. they are often in the same unit and while the the better off had a better chance of being officers it was not unusual for you know gentlemen farmers to find themselves being commanded by people who would have been their employees in fact in one case i read about yeah the officer was an employee of a man in his unit in civilian life. Wow! But, but in the army, he got to tol- tell him what to do.
0: Okay, so so there there was a degree of meritocracy in in the army. It didn't sort of matter in some senses what your your social background was. If you showed yourself capable, you could end up in in command of a you know a unit or or a regiment or whatever with with people who were your elders and betters sort of in <laughs> under your command.
1: Yes, it was an accidental meritocracy mm-hmm. in that. The Australian Army wished they could call on, you know, enough gentlemen, enough middle class people to be officers, mm. but we didn't have the population to do it. So, unlike the British Army, we had to select people who were merely good at their job. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we often pat ourselves on the back for, for a, a meritocracy in our officer ranks, mm-hmm. but that was accidental. It, it wasn't designed that way.
0: Oh okay fair enough. So what what was everyday life like for these guys like on the front whether it was as you say in you know, the western front or, or Gallipoli or, or elsewhere?
1: Well, it does vary a bit from front to front. At, at Gallipoli, you couldn't get away from the from the front because the slice of coast that they held was so narrow mm. that even the generals were under daily artillery fire. Wow. So, yeah, uh, Gallipoli's different. But if you're looking at say Palestine and but particularly France, where the bulk of Australians served, we often have the idea that they're in the front trenches fighting all the time. Actually, they would spend maybe less than a third of their time in at the front. Mm. And even at the front, they'd be rotated through the very front trench, then the reserve trench, and then the support trenches. And the rest of the time, they'd be out of the line. They'd be training, they'd be resting, or they'd be doing kind of support work, bringing up supplies, they found that if they kept soldiers actually in the trenches for too long, their fighting capacity generated real quickly. So right. my dad, who who experienced the Vietnam War in, in the French army before mm. the war that we know of, uh, used to tell me that war was 99% boredom, 1% terror. And I think mm. that's probably a fair description for the Anzacs as well.
0: Wow. Okay. So, look, obviously, at the time, Australia was a, a very strong Christian country, at least nominally. You know, most people sort of went to church and identified, you know, as Anglicans or Roman Catholic or or whatever. How did that translate to the life in, in the trenches?
1: Okay. I read... Uh... Probably one of our best Anzac historians recently, Peter Stanley, said that Australia at the time was a church-respecting rather than a church-going country. Right. Okay. Probably about 25 to 30% of people had some sort of regular connection with church.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, the bulk of the Anzacs were not church-going folks, but as Stanley rightly notes, they were church-respecting folks. So, you know, religion had a, an honoured and respected place in society. Right. So, if
0: you, if you asked them, are you a Christian, the answer would be yes, even, oh, if, absolutely. even if they were essentially, you know, Christmas and, and Easter Christians. Yes, and sometimes not even that. Sometimes they were birth, marriages and death Christians. Oh, okay.
1: But most Australians probably would have felt insulted if you'd described them as not being Christian because they associated Christianity with a, a basically British... Outlook on Life, which suggested that they were, you know, good people with with high morals. And so, it described a lifestyle rather than a, a particular set of theology or doctrines.
0: Mm, okay. All right. Now, so, in your book, you know, Anzac Spirituality, The First AIF Soldiers Speak, you actually look at their, their war diaries, their, you know you know it is the first aif soldier speak and we actually have a review in this month's edition of signs of the times magazine by um, jeff uh, trelaw and he is quite impressed by the the range of you know different people that you have speaking there and, and to hear those soldiers in the first person what do we learn about these guys from from hearing like directly from from their pens about what they cared about what what moved them and and indeed their their spirituality as well I guess
1: what we hear is their thoughts and their emotions. The highly respected historian, Bill Gamage, said that having read The Diaries of a Thousand Soldiers, he was surprised that they didn't talk about religion. Oh, okay. I've also read The Diaries of a Thousand Soldiers, and I find that more than a third of them talk about religion. Oh, okay. And they they have opinions and generally strong opinions and what struck me i was actually quite surprised was how often their opinions are favorable to religion
0: hmm. now, so, so how, how do you explain the difference between your interpretation of the diaries and uh, you know another historian's interpretation of the diaries what what's going on there is is it a matter of the the sort of the lenses that you put on as you're reading those diaries or or something else
1: no, look, I suspect it's lenses. Uh, Australian historians often begin with the notion that that Australians are not concerned with religion, mm-hmm. and and a few historians have noted that religion is a consistently overlooked as a factor in Australian history. Mm. And if you read Gamage's book, *The Broken Years*, very famous book and very very important book, it's actually stuffed full of quotes about religion. Oh wow! But but he didn't recognise it because he. You know, I don't know. He he just didn't. I've deliberately set out to do so.
0: Mm.
1: And so those quotes stand out for me. And perhaps some of them didn't for particular reasons. For instance, if a guy writes in his diary, went to church every Sunday, you know, in his diary at Gallipoli, you might go, well, that doesn't say much. But then you've got to remember that going to church at Gallipoli wasn't compulsory Mm. and was potentially dangerous because a group of men sitting around the open could be more easily shelled. Mm, so actually, recording mm. that you went to church every week at Gallipoli is a statement of your commitment okay. to church.
0: Okay. And, and so what, what about, it's interesting that you don't, focus on the you know your, your book isn't called the anzac religion it's called anzac spirituality so it seems that you're looking at something that's maybe a little more personal than just and sort of external loyalty to a particular you know christian denomination what do you find out by looking at what they said about their actual spirituality what was going on you know deep in their hearts
1: by and large the age I'm looking at, the First World War, they Mm. really wouldn't have understood what we do by the term spirituality. So, I'm applying a term we use today Mm -hmm. backwards. Right. But but I'm doing it because if if we talk about religion today, we've got such a narrow concept of what it is. Mm. They probably thought of religion in the way we think of spirituality. Okay. All right. That is to say, nearly all their discussion of spirituality is done through a religious framework. However, Mm -hmm. the final chapter of the book looks at manifestations of spirituality outside of religion. Oh, yes. Such as? Uh, Such as, well, uh, you know spirituality is one of those things we think we know but very hard to pin down a definition mm. i basically defined it as as any expression of the human spirit particularly in looking for higher meaning mm-hmm. and so for instance some will write in absolute raptures about nature scenes and obviously it lifts their spirits mm-hmm. letters from home will change the dynamic music sport in some cases there's a whole range of activities we do as human beings to feed the soul mm-hmm. and uh, without necessarily referring to religion so that chapter focuses on that
0: mm. okay all right so what i guess when you're in a situation where you know there are people dying around you you know death is a reality of the the soldier at war's life did you see them, like through their diaries and through their their letters home, trying to make sense of of this sort of life and death situation they were in?
1: Absolutely, that's very consistent. And and here we get to deal with some some popular misconceptions. Mm. Uh, you know, the famous statement: "There are no atheists in foxholes." Mm-hmm. And my study shows that the longer they're in the foxhole, the more atheists they become. Right. Okay. Uh, that is to say. Approaching their first battle, most soldiers got very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Church attendance skyrocketed, and the sober reflection in diaries and letters home. Mm-hmm. But the longer they survived, particularly in the First World War, where survival didn't seem based on skill but sheer luck. Mm. the longer they survived, the less likely they were to see the hand of God in it on a minute-by-minute basis. Mhm. And and they kind of put it down to fate or
0: luck. Mm -hmm.
1: So, look, a lot of time we see the First World War as destroying faith. Mm. I've got evidence that soldiers lost their faith in the First World War. I've got evidence that soldiers found faith for the first time in the First World War. Okay. I've got evidence that non-believers had their non-belief confirmed by the war. Mm. I've got evidence that believers had their belief confirmed by the war. Mm. So it's, it's difficult to draw a single generalisation. What we need to do is recognise that spirituality in general and religion in particular played a more important role in their lives than we've generally acknowledged. That is, soldiers actually thought about these issues. They they argued the theology. They wrestled with how can there be a good God after the battle of poziere mm. which was a living hell yeah
0: you know they, they do ask themselves those questions and they don't offer trivial answers mm. do, do they offer answers that you know might be useful for you know us living now in the in the 21st century 100 years later i, I think so i think so and and
1: uh, the answers aren't all in the same direction different mm. soldiers come to different conclusions yeah yeah and and i think that's important to recognize so we we can't use it as a polemic for religion or against religion, mm. this is this. These are real people who are bringing the totality of their life experiences to a very specific event, mm. and going, "How can I make sense of it?" And the ways in which they do that are fascinating.
0: Yeah, wow. Now, it's interesting that you you sort of hint at the the randomness of, you know, what one day you could be fine, you'd be a, a fine, upstanding bloke, and the, and the next day you're sort of dead. There was this sort of randomness to it. There's no rhyme or reason. As you say, it seemed like fate or, or luck rather than some sort of grand plan was, was at work. I guess thinking about the First World War in general, it's a war that I guess we're still struggling to make sense of, like, why did it even happen? Was there even a good reason for it? You know, Christian theologians have long had had this idea of a just war theory, you know, where, well, you know, there are certain times when you actually need to go and and stop Hitler or stop, you know, who, who, whatever dictator or ISIS, or it sort of makes sense. But the first world war kind of doesn't in a way, did you, did we see soldiers in the trenches sort of dealing with these larger issues of, of ethics and why they were even there? Yes, but probably not as
1: many as we might expect. Mm. For a start, they, they came to the war with a very different mindset than we have today. Mm-hmm. They grew up in a culture where most people were assured that the British way of life was the best way of life. Right. They didn't really doubt that. They had a, a, a very firm conviction about white Australia. Most most Australians at the time believed that keeping Australia for the white man was actually the, the morally right thing to do. They didn't question that. Mm. And they actually fought to keep Australia white, so the reasons why they f- they fought we might struggle with a bit today hmm. our, our values have have shifted, but there was a fairly universal acceptance of that very occasionally you 'll find somebody who casts a bit of doubt. Tom Richards is a famous one, very famous um, rugby union player hmm. and and he kind of questions the the morality of the war didn 't stop him from going, mind you mm. Hmm. But when you consider that all of the Anzacs were volunteers, yeah. Naturally those who were deeply opposed to the war wouldn't have signed up in the first place. Right.
0: Okay. okay. But but nevertheless I mean that that Gallipoli campaign was one of the most sort of star-crossed, you know, military episodes ever. It was poorly planned. It was for a very poor reason and had an extremely poor result. It sort of seems surprising that the soldiers could come out of that experienced sort of still, you know, singing of, of king and country. But are you saying that they did?
1: Yeah. Well, for a start, Gallipoli was far from the most problematic event in the First World War for Australian soldiers. Okay. I think if you looked at the Battle of Frommel, the Battle of Pozier, and the two battles of Bulkor, hmm. the, the questions that they posed put Gallipoli in the shade. Oh, okay. They're far more horrific. We've, we've just mythologised Gallipoli, but we forget that the others actually matter more. Yeah,
0: okay. And, and, I look, think, and I think actually when you look at the statistics, the largest contingent at Gallipoli wasn't Australians or New Zealanders, it was actually the British, is, is that correct?
1: Look, there are eight or nine different nationalities at Anzac Cove not to speak of Cape Hellas, which was almost entirely British. Mm. We've turned it into an exclusively Australian story. We've even forgot the New Zealanders who make up two letters in Anzac. (laughs) But yeah, it was a multinational
0: experience. Yeah, wow. So this is really interesting, Daniel, because you, like over the last several years, you've put together quite a few, you know, books and and histories and studies of the First World War. I mean, there was your your book, Celluloid Anzacs, that looked at some of the, like the film that survives from from that time, you also did a biography of one of the a Salvation Army chaplain there, William McKenzie, the the man the Anzacs revered. Is is the name of that book? And now here again, we we have you know Anzac spirituality, you know, your latest book. What is it about the First World War that that fascinates you that keeps sort of bringing you back to explore that period of history?
1: I, I guess partly personal, partly professional. Mm. Wars always fascinated me. Mm. It's the most Extreme behaviour that societies engage in collectively, mm. and yet we do it repeatedly. It's incredibly costly, very devastating.
0: Mm.
1: So, trying to understand that uh, habitual human behaviour is is part of what a historian does. Mm. Secondly, we've set the First World War up in Australian culture, and we've invested it with meanings and narratives that aren't fully reflective of the truth. Now, most of the stories we tell ourselves about Anzac have a foundation in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes them mythic isn't what we say, it's what we leave out. Right. For instance, there were Bushman Anzacs, there were Larrikan Anzacs. Mm-hmm. Um, true, but most of them were city types and, and town types. Mm. One-fifth of the Anzacs were bought in, born in the UK Where are their voices in the Anzac story? You know, the the Anzac divisions were littered with accents from from the British Isles, Mm. not to mention other places, New Zealand, South Africa, America, Norway, Russia. They all served, but we've turned it into an exclusively narrative. Hmm. So, and, and were there uh, were there
0: Indigenous Australians there for fighting? There were, and
1: hmm. and we're finding more and more because at the time they weren't very clearly identified. But hmm. but yes, we've we've identified Indigenous hmm. ANZACS who, generally speaking, were treated as equals during the war and then uh, shunted off after the war and treated as as not even second class citizens. You know. Wow. So so basically, my studies have been asking us as Australians to rethink some of the pavlovian responses we've got to the first world war you know mm-hmm. we okay. we hear this stuff and we react straight away actually it's more complex than that it's it's more sophisticated than that and it's the the silences in our history that help us distort what it really means mm. and uh I'm one of a number of historians who are trying to address some of those silences. My particular interest at the moment is the silence around religion, Mm. because we've made ANZAC a religion. Well, let's find out what the ANZACs actually believed in the first place.
0: Yeah, wow. So, here we are, Daniel. I mean, I think when this uh, interview will be heard, it will be, you know, Armistice Day or just after it, the 11th of the 11th. And it's a hundred years this year mm-hmm. from the end of the First World War. There in in 1918, what do you think we should be, you know, reflecting on as we consider? Well, you know, a hundred years since the end of the First World War, the the armistice. What what? What's an important message do you think we we need to hear at this point in history? I think it's appropriate to honour what people did on our behalf a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's important to remember that. The, the sacrifice, the cost. I think it's also important to remember that they're human. They they represented their set of values and Australia's values have shifted. Mm-hmm. And and I think in all honesty we ought to we ought to be open about the ways in which they've shifted. Mm. Not assume that our current values are what the Anzacs actually fought for. Right. I don't think it's a problematic issue that we've idealised Anzac. Hmm. I think it's problematic if we assume that the ideal is the history, all right. I think we should be able to see both of those things simultaneously without having one destroy the other hmm. so the memorialization of Anzac yes, I think it's important it's very significant hmm. the the idealization of anzac of of, of turning the Anzac narrative into what it really means to be an Aussie. Mm. That's not a bad thing. Countries should have shining ideals, and those ideals are often drawn from their history. Mm. At the same time, we need to recognise that the Anzacs were human too, faulty, flawed, diverse, We've tended to narrow them down to a single stereotype. Actually, they were far more diverse. I read one diarist who goes, you know, we were a mixture of everything from the vicious to the religious, from the, you know, and he lists the the different dimensions on which Anzacs fall in. If we can remember them in their rich humanity, Mm. as well as distill from their history some ideals... To which we as Australians can keep striving, I think we'll have done a good thing.
0: Mm, okay. It's really interesting, you know, that when it comes to, you know, Remembrance Day, the 11th of the 11th, when it comes to Anzac Day, when you go to, you know, just about any country town or city around Australia, you, you'll see a, a memorial there for, from the First World War, or the Great War, as, as it was called. And on all of those memorials, we have this message, lest we forget. What was the intention behind that? What will we not supposed to forget and have we that's a really good question you know and we've we've really
1: attempted the answer okay we've just assumed lest we forget well the Mm. first thing we want to remember is the sacrifice soldiers made Mm -hmm. and i think that's the way most people remember it Mm. Uh, what is unusual is the degree to which the first world war entered western consciousness Mm -hmm. prior to this generally we buried the war dead in anonymous graves all right First World War is the first time we've made a cult of the burial of the dead, mm-hmm. of, the, of the war dead. Yeah. And it, it points to a, a different consciousness and
0: awareness that the First World War was different, perhaps, mm. to other wars. Well, and it that, was particularly devastating, wasn't it, really, in, in terms of body count, in terms of the, the weapons used? It, yes, it, it was. Is but is that but part you of it? see,
1: the, the Second World War was far deadlier, mm. but somehow. We remember the First World War as casualties and the Second World War as outcomes.
0: Yeah, okay. I, I guess I'm just reflecting, you know, back on my high school history, just thinking, you know, before that time, it was sort of, you know, horses and and th- and things like that, and suddenly we had trench warfare and machine guns and barbed wire and mustard gas and the, all these new technological innovations just really seem to shock people. And is that what they're asking us not to forget? Wow, you know, man's hum- man's inhumanity to man. We have this incredible cleverness and in technology, and we turned it on one another and destroyed one another, is is that a part of the message of lest we not forget or, or am I projecting my own slightly pacifist tendencies on, onto it?
1: Look, I think we all project. I think the people who came up with the phrase lest we forget were projecting their, their hopes onto it. Yeah. So, uh, I think we need to recognise that's what happens. It's inevitable and it ought to be. Lest we forget what? That's a really great question. Mm. There were times when people said, lest we forget that we're here to defend white Australia. Mm. current Australia is happy to forget that. And I think, well done. <laughs> yeah. Lest we forget, lest we forget all sorts of things. You know, there, there's there's no end of, of lessons we can learn from history, but it seems as if we need to relearn them. The world is currently in a cycle of reverting to fairly nationalistic, mm. exclusive, uh, xenophobic behaviours.
0: Mm. And I'm going, as a historian, uh, oh dear, we seem to have forgotten Mm, forgotten those lessons of history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, well, thank you so much, uh, Daniel Reno, for for helping us. You know, remember through through your book. Uh, the book is called Anzac Spirituality: The First AIF Soldiers Speak. How do we get hold of that book, uh, Daniel? Because it, it's obviously it's a history rather than you know a mainstream sort of popular novel. Is it hard to get hold of, or fairly easy? It, it should be fairly
1: easy. You can get it online mm-hmm. uh, through the usual book distributors, mm-hmm. or you could simply uh, go to your local bookshop with the title of the book, which you can get offline, okay, and um, and tell them, you know, I'd like a copy of this book. Excellent. And, and fairly good reception so far? The reviews of it have been very enthusiastic. I've been very pleased. And when I've talked to audiences, I, I get a sense of, of excitement of – of wow, we didn't know that. That's that's really something we'd like to look into. So yeah, it, yeah. it's had a, a good reception.
0: Great, yeah. If it filling in those silences, like you say, filling in those gaps. Hey, thank you very much, uh, Associate Professor Daniel Reno. Really appreciate your time. A pleasure. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just twenty six dollars for eleven issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist
1: Media.